Good evening. Well, this evening we continue in the book of Job in chapter 9. You can turn there with me. In chapter 9, Job is about to respond to the rebuke that he received from his friend Bildad, the Shuite. In fact, we saw last week that Bildad was attempting to try to fix Job's situation by identifying the source of the problem as Job. Not all that different than what Eliphaz had said, but what Bildad said was that Job should be rebuked for his complaining. In other words, in all the suffering he's experienced, he shouldn't complain. In fact, this man could never reconcile that a just God would allow a righteous man to suffer. That was his dogma. That was his understanding of God. And he weighed everything against that. He was more of a philosopher than anything else um, that Bildad took the time to try to explain to Job why he was suffering, certainly not understanding at all. But in his understanding, he proclaimed that, that Job's children were killed because they were sinners. Little comfort there. And we know that wasn't true. He encouraged Job, confess your sin before God and be restored. And so much like Eliphaz had said, he's blaming Job for his circumstances, blaming his suffering on forgetting about God, accusing him of trusting in his own integrity and not in God, describing him as stubborn, unwilling to admit that he was wrong. And so in the end of what Bildad had to say, he testified that God's justice is sure that God is just, that his justice in dealing with men can be relied upon. And in that, Job agreed with him. And so he begins to respond in chapter 9 in verse 1, responding to that rebuke that he received in chapter 8. But before we get to that, let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you, and as we study this precious book in your word, we understand, yes, it's poetry, But it's true. It's the truth of your word set forth in verse that we might understand your dealings with men, that we might understand that you do allow suffering in our lives and that there is indeed a purpose in your infinite counsels as to why we might suffer, why we might might be experiencing or might experience difficulty in this life. Give us understanding this evening and speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get right into it in chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Job is responding to that rebuke that I recap for you from, uh, from Bildad. And <clears throat> the first thing he testifies to is that God is all-knowing, and he's all-powerful. He knows all things, and he's able to do all things. It's amazing that in the midst of Job's suffering, he never doubts that. So his understanding of God is correct, and yet he's trying to reconcile his understanding of God, where God knows that he's innocent and is powerful enough to deliver him, and yet he appears to be suffering as if he were a sinner. And I just want to stop a minute and remember this for just a second. As we talk about the purpose of God in suffering, remember that there was one who suffered on the cross for us. And the Father, all-knowing and all-powerful, that is, knowing that Jesus was innocent, that he had never, in fact, sinned, far more innocent than Job or anyone else would ever be, and all-powerful, powerful enough to, to deliver Jesus from the cross, allowed him to suffer on the cross for our sins, knowing that he had never sinned. So keep that in mind, that 
that shows you that there was a purpose in Jesus' suffering. There was a purpose in Job's suffering, and there's a purpose in our suffering. So we read in verse 1, Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true. Now, when he refers to what's true, he believes that uh, what Bildad said about God being just is true, that he's true and can be relied upon. He says, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His, His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves the mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted, and when he passes by, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. Now, I'll take a moment. We'll explain some of the language so you'll understand essentially what he's saying here. But it's Job testifying to God being all-powerful and all-knowing. And he agrees. Bildad is right concerning God being just. His nature is that of justice. He is a just God. He is a loving God. He's a merciful God. But of, above all, he's just. He doesn't do things that are wrong or unjust or cruel. And he, he refused to challenge God's wisdom because what would be the point? He refused to challenge God's power. What would be the point? But when he talks about God's power, he uses the symbols of that power, earthquakes, even the weather, and in fact, the universe itself, when he talks about the constellations. And if you're into astronomy, you you know that these constellations exist today. The bear, Ursa Major, you know, that's a constellation everybody knows. The Big Dipper, you know, you know that, uh, because uh, even as a kid, you, you could find that in the sky very easily. Orion as well can be found very easily. And the Pleiades, another, another, uh, constellation, the seven sisters that can be found very easily in the sky. And he says all of the constellations of the south. So it's interesting that these constellations and their names have existed for a very long time. It it wasn't the Greeks or the Romans or any other ancient peoples that talked about these things first. It It was God and his word, and it was revealed to God's people very early on and passed on from generation to generation, from people group to people group. And these constellations are still referred to today. That's a larger conversation, which we'll talk more about as we get into the study in the book of Job. But we learn there that he is in control of earthquakes, the weather, and the universe. So what are you going to do? How are you going to argue with God? So he refused to challenge God's sovereignty, that is God's control over all things, and he describes it as inexplicable, unperceivable, and irresistible. That is, there is no way to explain it, no way to perceive it, and no way to resist it. Job knows this about God. That's what makes it so confusing for him, because he knows in his heart he's done nothing to deserve his suffering. His friends disagree, but he knows in his heart that he has done nothing wrong. And he's trying to figure it out, but he can't figure it out. Have you ever felt like that? Say amen. You don't understand what God is doing. You're trying to figure out what God is doing. I mean, I look at our world, and I'm like, Lord... What are you doing? 
allowing these clowns to continue to promote their insanity, their utter nonsense, their ridiculousness, the wickedness, the evil that's being promoted by some in our culture today and throughout the world. Wars, rumors of wars, pestilences, famines, all the things that we're told would happen in the last days are happening around us. And we, in our finite wisdom, say, God, why? And yet God told us it would happen. It's inexplicable. It's not something I can explain adequately for myself, let alone you guys. I don't perceive it. It sort of happens without me realizing it. And there's nothing I can do about it. It's irresistible. And so Job recognizes you can't do anything about this. God is in control, and you have to be okay with that. He mentions Rahab. And that might confuse some of you because Rahab was a person in the Bible. But Rahab here, it's a word that means quarrelsome or proud. It's actually an adjective. It it describes, it's a name, but but it's a name that describes a character. And the character is that of being quarrelsome or proud. A person or a thing that is quarrelsome or proud. I'm sure we've met people like this. But it's a poetical name that was applied to Egypt in the book of Psalms and in Isaiah, because at the time, Egypt was the current world power. So the proud one in that context was Egypt. But it it doesn't mean Egypt. It points to Egypt because Egypt was proud. So any group of people or anything in this world that is proud and quarrelsome could be described as Rahab. But what's very interesting to me is in 26, chapter 26 of the book of Job, which we'll get to eventually, The word was used to describe an enormous sea creature. And we've seen this already in this book, and we'll see it again. Over and over again, the Leviathan comes up, and the Leviathan is a description of a fire-breathing dragon. And some believe it's it's just a a mythological creature, and indeed it might be. Uh, But all the major cultures of the world have dragons in their mythology or their legends, and it's often uh, that we wonder, uh, why is that? In fact, you have a dragon and a serpent in the Garden of Eden. So if there's anything or anyone that's more proud than Satan, I don't know what it, what it is. So it's, it's interesting. It's just an interesting symbol that's used here, and that's why the word Rahab is used. And we'll come back to that again in future studies. But then he goes on to testify that man cannot argue with God. All the things that Job says here are very true. You just can't argue with God. I remember as a kid, they'd have these commercials on uh, regular TV. Remember when we had three or four channels, if you were lucky? And, the, and, and then at like one o'clock in the morning, you had like no channels. <laughs> you just went, and that was it. I'd stay up to watch the Twilight Zone, and pretty much after that, it was all over. But what I do know is that in this culture, in this world in which we live, we think that we have the ability to resist God. There was this commercial that used to come on. Your arms too short to box with God. It was a play, I guess, on Broadway at the time. And and I don't know anything about the play, but I know that that's true. (laughs) Your arms are too short to box with God. And seeing that commercial as a little kid and, and hearing that, I mean, you wonder if they would even use God in the title of a Broadway play today where it wasn't being used as a, you know, curse. (laughs) But it's true. You and I, we can't resist God. You can't argue with God. Part of serving God is recognizing that. 
There are people that are constantly arguing with God as if they stand a chance or they could possibly make any comment that would hold God in contempt. They they simply can't. And so he goes on, verse 14. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he he, he responded, I, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who will summon him or hold him accountable, right? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, I would, it would pronounce me guilty. So he realizes Job is not claiming to be sinless or even innocent. He's standing up for himself and saying, I have integrity and I'm upright. I'm a righteous man, but he's not suggesting that he's never sinned or that he doesn't sin. He's just suggesting that he's upright and done nothing to deserve the suffering he's going through. And we know that's true. God told us that up front in this book. But as we've learned, and as I shared with you already, your arms are too short to box with God. And certainly, you cannot argue with God. Job recognized, while he wasn't innocent, he accepted that God did not owe him any explanation. The sooner you accept that in life, that God doesn't owe you an explanation, the better off you'll be. There are lots of people that hold God in contempt and suggest that God isn't fair. Oh, God isn't fair. He isn't loving. Well, maybe you feel that way. We know what his word says about who he is, and we trust in that. But we also know that he, he never said that he would give you an absolute explanation for every question you had, only that you could trust him and that he's good and that he's working all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Amen? So no explanation is necessary. He doesn't owe you one. He may give you one, but he certainly doesn't owe you one. He understood, that is, Job understood, you cannot possibly resist God's will. And then he goes on to testify that God is in control of all things. And that's a very hard or bitter pill to swallow because if God is in control of all things, then God is in control of the suffering that Job is enduring. See, deep down in his heart, he knows this to be true. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it. He is literally living this, and he's having a hard time with it. And in processing it, he's complaining about it, and his friends aren't understanding at all. They're just finding fault, trying to fix him. Well, let's read verse 21. Verse 21, although I am blameless, and by the way, blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means that no one can look at your life and say, ha, you're guilty of this. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? In other words, God's in control of all these things. He's not holding God in contempt. It may sound like that in the language, but he's just looking at it and saying, well, look, when destruction comes, the innocent suffer, the wicked suffer. When a scourge comes, it brings death. And even though the innocent people despair, they're still destroyed. That's why it says he mocks the despair. Not in a mocking tone, but just it's going to happen anyway. And when land falls into the hands of the wicked, that when, when a, a nation is conquered or an area is conquered, he blindfolds its judges. Certainly there are a number of our judges that can't seem to see justice. 
But that happens. And then he's basically saying, if it's not God who allows it and does it, then who? Then who is it? He accepts that God is in control of all things. So that is something we certainly need to do. But understand, he still firmly believed he wasn't suffering for having sinned against God. He knew it in his heart. There's no point at which he doubted that. He accepted the truth that God allowed the innocent to suffer, affliction, and misfortune, oppression, and injustice. And by the way, if you've lived five minutes on this earth, you know that's true. Then he complains about something else that his friends have determined that he's guilty before God. So here he is saying, look, I'm not guilty, but my friends, you you already have decided I'm guilty. And so we pick it up in verse 25. In verse 25, my days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile. I still dread all my sufferings, for I know you, speaking to his friends, For I know you will not hold me innocent. Since I am already guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Very poetic language of saying, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I say. You've already condemned me. You've already decided I'm guilty. Again, speaking to his friends and what they've done to him and what they've said about him. He does believe that his life will quickly pass away. He doesn't believe he's going to survive. That much is pretty clear. He also doesn't believe that any action on his part will change his current circumstances. That's important to realize. He realizes he's in God's hands. He can't control his own life or the circumstances of his life. And then he refuses to cease his complaint because why should he? It won't change their opinion of him anyway. So he's just going to go on. And that's why the book of Job doesn't stop here, but keeps going. (laughs) So, then we have what is possibly the most beautiful section of our study this evening. Because in it we see that Job cries out for someone to intercede on his behalf. He recognizes the only way that he can confront God about these things and and receive an audience with God, the Creator, as as he's described him as all-powerful and all-knowing, is if there was an intercessor, if there was someone who could intercede on his behalf. And that's what he says here in verse 32. He says, speaking of God, he is not a man like me that I might answer him. That we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. Someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it stands, as it now stands with me, I cannot. That's really an interesting assessment because what Job is essentially saying is he needs an intercessor. He needs an intermediary. He knows that he has no rightful place before God's throne. Even being blameless, he has no place to plead his cause and plead his case. So he longs for an intercessor between God and man. Well, we have the benefit of looking back over thousands of years and knowing that, thank God in heaven, we have an intercessor. We have a mediator. And it's only a God-man that could arbitrate between God and man. Only a Savior could save man from sin's penalty. Only a qualified mediator could, could instill the boldness for a man or a woman to approach the throne of God. And there are many scriptures I could give you, most of them from the book of Hebrews, that show us that we do have that place and that our mediator is, in fact, Jesus Christ. 
First Timothy makes that clear. There is a mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He is God, he is man. And so what Job is crying out for, he's right when he says, as it stands, as it now stands with me, I cannot. But as it stands with us, we can, amen? See, say boy there, right? Yes, we can. <laughs> we can because of Jesus Christ, we can. And so what he's crying out for, we have. Just take a moment to appreciate that. Because Job was living at a time where this, this statement here is true. He is not a man. But for us, he became a man and continues to be a risen man sitting on the throne of God. We can say that. This was true for him then, but it's not true for us now. And so that's a beautiful, beautiful portion of Scripture because, of course, it points to Jesus Christ. Amen? And he is the answer. And Job knew it, even though... Christ had not yet come. He knew that that would be the only answer, the only way that a man or a woman could stand before the throne of God and plead their case and approach the throne of grace with boldness. Okay, so now Job goes on to complain. <laughs> if you don't like complaining, the book of Job might be, a, you might need the patience of Job. There's uh, a lot of complaining, but you would be complaining as well if you were going through his circumstances. So Job complains, and then he begins to question God about his suffering. He wants to understand. After he just went through all this of saying you can't do anything about it, he still longs in his heart to understand. Even though he understands that he may never get an answer and God doesn't owe him an explanation, he still wants to know. And you can't blame him. He wants to know what is the cause of all this. Why am I suffering? And so we read in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 10. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands? While you smile on the schemes of the wicked, that is, he allows them. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Are your your days like those of a mortal or your years like those of a man? That you must search out my faults and probe after my sin, though you know that I am not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand. He understands these truths. His situation, he's in God's hands. And that's been true from the very first verse the very first chapter of this book. So why has God allowed him to suffer? He's determined not to hold himself back at this point. What would be the point? He, he can give free reign to his complaint because he's not real happy with his life. And you wouldn't be either, believe me, if you were suffering as he was. He wants to know what he's done to deserve this suffering. He trusts that God is aware of his innocence and his suffering. See, he knows he's innocent and he knows God knows all things. So he's like, well, I know God knows I'm innocent but why on earth am I suffering? Well, he questions why God would destroy his own creation because Job understood he had a creator. His creator is God. God created him. And the language of creation that's used here is that of being created in the womb. And it's so important because this is not the only scripture and the only place in scripture that talks about life beginning at conception. Life in the womb. We read in verses 8 through 12, Job says, your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? 
Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. That's very interesting. Watched over my spirit. So while his fleshly life in the womb was being created by God through the process that God created of cellular division, that that process that a child is knit together in the womb, that's God's process. And when we interrupt it, we're threatening it. We're threatening uh, a life, an innocent life. We're violating God's word and God's creative genius and all the principles of life. We are the sanctity of life. But what we understand is that when we look at this description of, of someone being created, he also says this. He says, you watched over my spirit. So you see, the important recognition we have here as it relates to the sanctity of life is that though the flesh is not fully formed, once life begins at conception, the spirit exists. So you can make an argument, not a good one, but you can make an argument that it's okay to terminate a life in the womb. But understand, at no point are you not killing someone's spirit. Because that spirit exists, and a spirit doesn't get formed over time. The spirit exists. God watches over that spirit as the body is formed in the womb. So there really can't be much of an argument, biblically speaking, about life beginning at conception and the sanctity of life in the womb. But Job understood that about himself. He understood that about God's creative genius. But he's trying to figure out, well, if you created me, why would you destroy me? Why would God work against himself? He wants to know why God would waste time creating him only to destroy him later. Very poetic language, dramatic language, to essentially say, why am I suffering? Then he questions why God has turned against him. And he feels that God has turned against him. Because again, he can't say, I've done this and therefore I'm suffering because he knows he hasn't done anything to deserve suffering. So he just feels like God has turned against him. Now, you might say, well, what an awful human being to feel that way. But remember, in his humanity, Christ from the cross said those words of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, at no point did Christ actually think in a way that God had forsaken him. He was quoting from the Psalms, And he was quoting a verse that really spoke about how the Savior was forsaken by God to a death on the cross in order that he might die on behalf of mankind. But it doesn't mean that Jesus was starting to have a lapse of faith or that somehow he was separated from God the Father. That could never happen. But in his humanity, he's looking at the situation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words that David spoke prophetically of Christ's crucifixion. Psalm 22, right? So understand, that's what we're talking about here. He's looking at his life and he's recognizing God has forsaken me, at least in the flesh. He's allowed this to happen to me, you might say. And he's trying to figure it out. Why has God turned against me? Look at verse 13. But this is what you concealed in your heart, and I know that this was in your mind. If I sinned, you would be watching me and would not let my offense go unpunished. If I am guilty, woe to me. And even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. And if I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. That would be if you were proud. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Your forces come against me wave upon wave like the sea. 
wave, I mean, one trial after another, wave upon wave. So he's essentially saying, you know, even if I'm innocent, I can't lift my head. Look at me. I have, I, even if I am innocent, what good would it do? I, I can't say anything about it. You've allowed it to happen. I understand that if I had sinned, you would have seen it. And I know I haven't. He goes on to say, look, I, 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 if I lift my head high, if I act proudly, well, you see that too. But yet you bring wave after wave against me. New witnesses against me, referring to his friends. And as far as he could tell, it seems that God just becomes more and more angry with him based on the circumstances of his life. And so he doesn't understand these things. He wants to understand these things, but he doesn't. Remember, he lived the life of accountability before God. We were told that in the first chapter of this book. He does feel that he's been unjustly judged by God. One could argue he's got a case. But when we get to the end of the book, you'll see that you can't do that with God. You know, you can be a man of integrity and you can suffer, but you can't hold God in contempt for it. He knows that God is just, but he also knows that he's innocent. He's trying to reconcile his beliefs with his experience. Have you ever been there? Say amen. Trying to reconcile your beliefs, what you believe, with your experience. And many times it doesn't line up in your heart. It doesn't line up in your life. Because if you're going to be honest, there are times where you look at what you believe and you look at what you're experiencing and you say, whoa, wait a minute, these things are out of sync. That's at least how you feel. Even though you know better, that's how you feel. He doesn't understand why he is being prosecuted instead of defended by God. He just feels that God should be on his side. And he feels that he isn't. He feels that he's against him. And his three friends had very recently become witnesses for the prosecution. So as if God allows these things to happen, and then these three friends show up, and then they start going after him too. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. They had stressed the anger and the judgment of God against Job. And they had said those things. And he's responding to their accusations. You know, it actually seems that Satan is conducting his third test against Job. Remember, it was the first test, and then the second test. First test, he lost his earthly possessions and his children. Second test, he lost his health. Now it seems the third test is Satan using his friends to question his integrity. You know, it's amazing because of the three tests, this is the one that's the most painful for Job. He's trying to make sense of it, and he can't. Well, he questions why God even brought him into the world. This is not the first time. It's not the last time. This is his looking at life and saying, well, why am I even here? I mean, this is called depression. Depression 101. I mean, the guy is in despair. And here's what we read in verse 18. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before any eye saw me. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return into the land of gloom and deep shadow, to the land of deepest night, of deep shadow and disorder where even the light is like darkness. That's beautiful poetry. But it's dark. Because it's coming out of the heart of a man who is depressed and starting to lose hope of ever. Actually, I would say, maybe, maybe even past that, maybe he's past the point of starting to lose hope. Maybe he's lost all hope of anything ever changing. He's lost sight of any purpose in and through his life. He pleads for a brief reprieve from his suffering before he dies and goes to Sheol or the place of the dead. 
And you would think at this point that his friends would hear this complaint and have some pity, some compassion. But it seems the more that Job complains, the more they just come at him. Now, we haven't heard from Zophar so far. But now Zophar is going to have his say. He's going to share his thoughts to attempt to remedy Job's suffering. And so we look at verses 1 through 6 in verse 1 of chapter 11. Then Zophar the Namathite replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless, and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak and that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Wow. Geez, thanks for the friendship and the comfort and the encouragement, right? God has even forgotten some of your sin. I mean, he's using exaggeration to make his point. He's saying, you are suffering because you brought this on yourself. Harshly rebuking Job for his complaining, refusing to let his words go unchallenged, mocking his defense of his integrity, even though we all know that he's a man of integrity, because God said so. This is Satan's attack that God has allowed, but it's not because he sinned. Now, he mentions the two sides of wisdom. It's interesting. There are, in in the classical mind, two sides of wisdom. There's human wisdom and divine wisdom. Now, the scripture in the New Testament talks about God's wisdom and man's wisdom. And, you know, it's using an interesting comparison. Paul talks about the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. And that's just as if God has any foolishness. He doesn't. It's just language that helps us to understand. God's wisdom is so much greater than man's wisdom. Man's wisdom is foolishness to God. But there are two sides to wisdom. And that's what he's referring to when he says, the secrets of wisdom for wisdom has two sides. Man's wisdom, God's wisdom. God's wisdom so much greater than man's wisdom. Now, when we look at Job's three friends, this is Zophar, but Eliphaz was a spiritualist. He looked at things from a very spiritual perspective. His idea, well, you know, you sinned, repent, and receive forgiveness and be restored. He believes in the spiritual. Bildad, who we talked about last week and we, we heard from last week, was a philosopher. He looked at life and tried to figure out why God might do something and came pretty much to the same conclusion, repent and be restored. You know, God is a just God. You know, a philosopher thinks his way through things. And then you have Zophar. Who's a dogmatist? Now, what a dogmatist is, is it's someone who believes what they believe, and no matter what happens around them, no matter what circumstances may befall them, their beliefs remain intact. There were a lot of dogmatists alive during the time of Jesus. They were called Pharisees, and they couldn't reconcile who Jesus was with their understanding of who Jesus was supposed to be. And a lot of people who are dogmatists can't get past, these are my beliefs, I will not alter them even slightly, because what I know to be true is true no matter what you say. These are very difficult people to deal with. Jesus had a hard time dealing with them. People who are dogmatists are very difficult. And I'll tell you what, Zophar is the most difficult of the three, as you could already tell by his rebuke up to this point. He simply has no grace for Job. He has nothing but condemnation. And so he's a dogmatist. 
And what he does is he challenges Job after harshly rebuking him for complaining. Instead of saying, you know, I can understand if I were in your shoes, maybe I'd complain too. He's, he's rebuking him. And then he challenges Job's knowledge of spiritual things in verses 7 through 9. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? Are, are they are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Very condescending. You'll probably meet people like this in your life if you haven't already. They're very difficult. And sometimes they claim to be the holiest among us. They're legalists, dogmatists, very difficult people to deal with. Then he goes on to insist that Job is guilty before God. Because in his mind, there's no other explanation for what Job is going through. Look at verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, if he comes along and confines you in prison and convenes a court, who can oppose him? Surely he recognizes deceitful men, and when he sees evil, does he not take note? But a witless man can no more become wise than a wild donkey's cult can be born a man. Interesting, right? Another translation would be that a wild donkey could be tame or born tame. So he's suggesting, look, what I know about life is this. We're all sinners. You must have done something because God is good and you're not. Now, it's interesting because the answer is something very different. God is good and Job was blameless and a man of integrity. And still he suffers. So where's, where's the room for the, the dogmatist in that argument? There is no room. And it's important to remember, that kind of person never really figures out what God is doing. They seem to already know, but they're wrong. In many cases, they're absolutely wrong. And they're of little comfort and no help to understanding God or his word. And that's the case for this man so far. He insists that Job is guilty before God. And then, finally, and they do this at the end of their speeches, they offer Job hope. He offers him hope in the midst of his suffering. In verse 13, he says, Yet, that is, despite all that I said, if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hand, hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water has gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope. You will look about you and take your rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid. And many will court your favor. Oh, but the eyes of the wicked will fail and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. Yeah, harsh. Oh, that's the hope he offers him. To acknowledge his sin and repent. Now, the problem with that is, and it was, the, it was sort of what Jesus experienced, he was being flailed, he was being tortured by the Roman soldiers with the cat and nine tails. And that was designed to elicit a, 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 a confession. It was designed to get you to confess to whatever you had done wrong. And the reason Jesus had nothing to say is because he had done nothing wrong. So here's the problem. The dogmatist says, you just need to acknowledge your sin and repent, but if you haven't done anything wrong, what can you do? In fact, you would be sinning if you said something that wasn't true. So that's why Jesus had nothing to say when he was treated so brutally. What could he acknowledge? He had never sinned. He had nothing to repent of. And while Job is an inferior 
parallel, it's important to understand, Job had nothing to repent of either. Even in his complaining, he never cursed God. He promised restoration. That is, Zophar promised restoration for Job. Just repent and God will restore you. If it were that easy, if it were that simple, no one in this world would ever suffer. So the dogmatist's understanding of life is flawed. But he coldly reminds him in the last verse of his fate if he doesn't repent. Your hope will become a dying gasp. Well, what these friends represent in our study, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, are the explanations, the inferior and wrong explanations of mankind trying to understand why God does what God does. It would be best if we got into the habit of simply acknowledging that God can do as he pleases, like Job did. And even when we're suffering, trusting God and acknowledge that he's, he's still in control. When you try to explain what God is doing and get God into a box and try to figure out, well, this is how God has to act. If I do this, then God will do that. Sooner or later, your formula is not going to work. Sooner or later, you're going to come up short. And then what do you do? We'll see when we get to the end of the book that God had some harsh words for these guys. They were wrong. And many people today are wrong when they try to figure out God. But isn't it a blessed truth that we have an intercessor? That we have one? As it says there, I want to read that again. It's just a beautiful phrase. I love it. He says this, they could lay his hand upon us both. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. Someone to remove God's rod from me, that is his judgment or his discipline, so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it stands with me, I cannot. Oh, aren't we so grateful for Jesus Christ, the God-man who is our mediator and our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided for each and every one of our needs. Spiritually, you've provided for every need we have. And when things don't make sense, especially when things don't make sense, help us to come to you, to cling to you, to look to you, to hear from you, that we might, apart from understanding what you're doing, trust you in all things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.